Father, you have said through your prophet Jeremiah that we are to boast not in ourselves, but rejoicing in our understanding and knowing of you. And that from that would boast in you. Even our boast in knowing you is not in ourselves. It's a boast in you and your mercy to know us first. And so bring us into the knowledge of you. And so we come to your word this morning and ask that you would help us to know you. That you would reveal your truth better to us. That we would walk more faithfully in the knowledge of our God. And keep us from error in this so we would not know any untrue things. But only what is true and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Final words. They carry a great deal of significance, don't they? The final words typically communicate something both about the speaker, but then even about his audience, and at the same time offers a summary of the message that speaker wants his audience to walk away with. So if you're a literature fan out there, you'll know oftentimes novels will end in the final chapters, even the final words, in an effort to summarize the entirety of the book in some short, pithy saying. So Charles Dickens, in A Tale of Two Cities, writes, It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to. Anybody? Oh, wow, I expected more. Than I have ever known. Maybe we'll get this one. The more modern classic of Harry Potter. Does anyone know how it ends? The author writes, the scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. And then you have the more quoted and often debated ending to the great Gatsby. So we beat on. Boats against the current. Born back ceaselessly into the past. Each statement that on their own you probably don't understand without reading the novel. But if you've been in the book and you're walking through the book and you get to the end, it is clear how the author is using it to bring to light what is most important for you to take away. It is deliberate and calculated and used as, as a brief summary to highlight the thrust of one's lasting message and even their lasting memory. This morning, we come to Paul's closing words to the churches in Galatia. And what we find is he, in effect, takes up the pen, he says. He's had a scribe writing the letter as he's been dictating it to him. And now he says he takes up the pen to personally handwrite these final words to ensure that he handwrites this closing message that most captures what he wants him to take away. And we'll find uh, that he brings to light four closing encouragements. But before we get to them, what I'd like to do is take a brief minute and just do a recap of the letter to bring all of us up to those closing words. And then we'll see what those four encouragements are, and I will use them as my four encouragements to you as the church that has hosted and loved us as our family departs tomorrow. As a side note, do remember, Paul wrote this letter and these four encouragements 
and sometime after revisited the churches in Galatia. So Lord willing, maybe one day my wife and I will be active here to, to visit you all. Um, so let's do a quick overview. The letter can essentially be broken into three parts. Okay, you have the origins, the doctrine, and the application of the gospel. The origins, doctrine, and application of the gospel. Chapters 1 and 2 present the origins, a, a gospel. Paul says, the gospel that I preach is the only gospel divinely revealed by Jesus to me and has been unchanged from the point of that revelation. It is authentic, exclusive, and it is divine. And then he proceeds in chapters 3 and 4 to unpack the doctrine of that gospel, what we call the doctrine of justification by faith, that man cannot on their own earn their state of righteousness before God, the righteousness that God requires on their own cannot be righteous. But if they would turn from their sin, their unrighteousness and trust in Jesus by faith, then they receive his righteousness. They are declared righteous or, as Paul says, justified. And so then he closes in chapters five and six by applying the effects of that justification the effects of being declared justified. Not only are you declared righteous by faith, but the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. And gradually he, he in, creates in you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. The spirit increasingly conforming you into the image of Christ as you wage war against sin and bear the spirit's fruit. So that's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. The origins of the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, and the, uh, the application of the gospel. And having now written all of this, Paul takes up the pen to give his final words. So please, if you will, turn in your Bible with me to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, which can be found on page 1816 if you're using a pew Bible in front of you. Galatians 6, verse 11 to 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. One of the sweetest parts of being here this summer is actually discovering how unique this church is. As Rachel and I were preparing to come when we discovered this was all going to work out i started engaging with folks i knew familiar with with maine either pastors or church leaders and across the board one of the things i heard is that the soil can be hard and the religious interest very limited 
And then I remember driving on our way here and seeing beautiful church building after beautiful church building, even as we drove down 102. And I see all these beautiful churches only to discover that long ago, many of them had abandoned the gospel. Many of them had abandoned the truth. But what a sweet gift it's been to arrive here with a people who hunger for the gospel, who deliberately pick this church because it's where you know the truth will be taught and the gospel will be preached. And so Paul's first closing encouragement to you, our first point, is to keep defending the gospel. Defend the gospel. I recently had a friend from the Secret Service here. Some of you know that. Some of you, he just kind of secretly snuck in as is his duty. Uh, but a friend from the Secret Service that was visiting, and I didn't know this, but the Secret Service was not initially established as a security detail for personnel. They were established. Anybody know why they were established? Currency, counterfeit. What do you think is the number one training to combat counterfeit currency? Recognize, so after meeting with multiple experts in the field, John MacArthur, Tim Challies, they both discovered one truth. Federal agents don't learn to spout, spot counterfeit money by studying counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. That's a good illustration of how we are to approach the gospel, how we are to approach defending the gospel. We must know it. We must study it and become so familiar with it. This is the number one way we prepare ourselves to defend against counterfeit gospels. It's, it's not a truth we receive at first and then sort of set on the shelf while we go on to pursue more mature or heavy doctrine. It is the very source of truth for us and what we should meditate on daily as our daily bread and meditation. And the false teachers Paul's been writing against in this letter are not that different from what we see today. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul said that these false teachers use unbiblical persuasion to make much of man instead of of God. And then here in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, they'll even alter the truth in order to boast of more followers and to avoid persecution. Much like today, they, their subtle changes end up pleasing the itching man-centered ears and yet stays close enough to the truth that it becomes almost deceivingly attractive. But what we must do as a church is become so intimately familiar with the true gospel that as the counterfeit comes across, we can by touch or we hold it in the light and the, the look and the feel and the smell of it immediately identifies and exposes the subtlest of changes so that it can be cast out from among us. You know, praise God that you already have elders committed to this. And praise God that the church is committed to this. And one thing, two things I would encourage you to do. One is pray for their labor that it would continue. And then let me encourage you to commit to reminding yourself individually of the gospel every day. Of preaching it to yourself. You know, if you, if you pause and think for a moment of the number of kind of daily essentials you have in life. 
Uh, maybe, hopefully, that's eating and and putting clothes on. And you know, my wife would like for me to clip nails. And there are lots of things that we view as our daily essentials in our in our life together. But imagine just removing or neglecting one, and the effects that it would have on your daily life. I think what Paul would encourage us to do is to see our daily reminding of ourselves of the gospel as exponentially more essential, as the very way we are to live the lives God desires for us, necessary in order to walk in obedience. So commit. I would encourage you to commit to reading a portion of God's word every morning. And as you read, conclude your time with, how, how does this text point me to the gospel? How does it help me better understand the gospel? And if, if that maybe seems a bit complicated, you could just identify a few texts that are very explicit with the gospel, very clear, and choose to meditate on one every day. Whatever it takes, use some tool, some instrument for reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel to better prepare yourself to defend it. And the five passages I found helpful, if you're like me and think that would be useful, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. John 3, verses 16 and 17. And even right here in Galatians, chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. Five passages that you could, you could put down in five days a week, meditate on each one. As you gradually become increasingly more familiar with the truth. And then as you do, figure out how would I explain the gospel to someone else in a 60-second conversation, in an elevator conversation, or a brief passing in a grocery store, and then a five-minute conversation, and then eventually a 30-minute conversation. And I think as you start to develop ways that you would explain it, ways you would teach the gospel, it will cement the truth of the gospel in your heart and in your mind and increase your awareness of it and your ability to identify what is untrue. Even consider initiating a discipleship relationship and with someone who can serve as your kind of gospel guardrails to call you out if you ever start adding something to the gospel or to help you think through culture's zealous attempt to remove or take truth from the gospel. Having that relationship with somebody who you can engage honestly about those issues. And if you're in such a relationship, remember that the, there is perhaps no greater thing you can do in your time if you were to do one thing than to remind each other of the good news of how Jesus has come to save sinners by grace through faith. Friends, Paul's first closing encouragement is that we as a church defend the gospel. But we don't merely defend it. We also proclaim it. We speak it. We tell others of it. As we become so intimately familiar with it, it starts to overflow in our hearts and come forth from our mouths as we boast about it. Which is Paul's second encouragement, that we would boast well. That we would boast well. Verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
See, the Judaizers loved the law because it allowed them to boast in themselves, boast in what they had done and the work they had accomplished. That their joy and their hope, even their focus, became a self-aggrandizement and in this life. But the Christian boast, what Paul says we are to be proactively bragging on, is not our accomplishments. It's not ourselves. It's not even our own faithfulness, but it's a cross. It is the very cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the work of the cross is that good of news. It is boast-worthy. It was at the cross that your salvation began. It was at the cross that you began the work of going from death to life. There is no greater news to boast about. When we look to the cross, we not only see man's depravity, the costliness of man's sin, that man had rebelled, even though God would make us in his image and tell us how we were to live, give us his law and instructions. We showed our inability to do so. We demonstrated our rebellious hearts, and God would have been right and just to pour out his wrath against our sin. And yet, in his great love and mercy, God sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life required of us and then willingly go to the cross for what reason? To bear in himself the penalty for our sins. For the sins of all who would turn away from their sin and trust in him by faith. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, both defeating sin and death, but then offering his righteousness to anyone who would receive it by faith. This good news, this gospel, is what offers to transform sinners into saints. It's what we see is the hope to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's what makes us a royal priesthood, part of a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. That purpose clause that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First Peter two nine. Does that get you excited? The, the idea that you have gone from a, a sinner to a saint, from death to life, from only hoping in what this life offers to a hope in what is to come. This, Paul says, should fill us with a sense of excitement such that we begin to boast about the excellencies of our God to save sinners like us. What do you get excited to boast about? I'm in New England, so I want to consider for a moment your potential response to last year's Super Bowl. How many, by show of hands, screamed at some point during the Super Bowl last year? And oh, fewer than I expected. Okay, there we go. There are the honest fans. Uh, probably both in anger at first, but then in joy at the end. You know, how many went to work the next day excited to talk to their friends, especially if their friends were Falcons fans? What stirred in you that elation, that excitement, that eagerness to tell others, to even boast? It was because you were excited about the news. 
the news was that good to you. It consumed you, even if only for a few minutes. It filled you in such a way that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth craves to speak. That's the reason. That's another reason we want to become so intimately familiar with the gospel. Because the more that we become familiar with the gospel, the more it, it's our meditation, the more it's on our hearts and minds, the more we will become captured by it. The more the truth will rivet us, will capture and arrest our attention and cause in us, create in us a desire to boast of it, to speak to others about it as we want to tell of the greatness of our God to save sinners like us. The greatness of our Savior who gave his life for us. What would it look like, even this week, to boast in the cross of Christ to those in your life? One of the challenges I think we face in evangelism is we, we often think we either need to earn the right to share the gospel with someone, or else we need to wait until they accept an invitation and willingly come to a place where the gospel will be shared. But I think one of the challenges with this is it almost compartmentalizes or detaches the gospel from your life as though it's a compartment that only gets opened when prompted. When what we, what we see here is the gospel is intended to permeate every part of the Christian life. Meaning that as we build relationships with our non-Christian friends or family members or co-workers or roommates or classmates or whoever it may be, part of their just getting to know you ought to be their being let in on the very truth that defines you. It's the very reason it shapes your worldview and your weekly commitments and the choices you make in life. So what if we just explain that to somebody when they ask about our life and we tell them of, of these choices we're making and then tell them why? That there was the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, who saw us in our state of sin and yet loved us to the point that he died for us, gave his life as a ransom to save us. And so now all we want to do with what remains of our short life is honor him. And then we share that good news with them, offer it to them. And even if they don't accept it, from that point forward, that friend or family member will see every act of love that you commit toward them through the lens of the gospel. Seeing every goodness and fruit of the spirit as not just you being a good person, but as the effects of you being a Christian. And it will begin to make Christ and his work in your life more attractive to them. And friends, we're better to practice this boastful joy in Christ than in your own homes. I was sharing just Friday with a few folks that I still remember my wife's seminary president uh, telling us that his w- w- the way that they thought through family time uh, was to make Jesus a just joyful part of their conversation. At the dinner table, he came up in conversation. 
When they were making plans, he came up as though he was there. When they thought through life together, often with joy and even bragging or boastfulness about Jesus, he would come up in front of their kids. And what their kids saw was the joy of the gospel in their parents' lives. That, he said, was what he thinks to be God's greatest human instrument. We know that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. It's the work of the Spirit. But the Spirit often uses human instruments. And he believes that to be the greatest human instrument God used to make Christ attractive. As we boast about Christ, it draws. It attracts and makes others want to come and see this great God that we would boast about. We're not responsible for the conversion of those around us, but we are responsible for joyfully telling others about the greatness of the gospel, about the greatness of our God and how they too can be saved. But what will make our boast even more attractive is when our lives begin to illustrate the transforming work of that cross, which is Paul's third encouragement. Live as new creations. Live as new creations. Verse 15, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What counts is a new creation. Those were the words that drew a friend of mine to keep going to church when she wasn't a Christian. She looked at her life and she knew it wasn't the way she wanted it to be. And yet she had no idea how to fix it, how to change it. She knew she needed to be made new, but not had no knowledge of, of how to do that until she heard the, the words of promise in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is, has gone. The new has come. Maybe that's you this morning. I'm feeling trapped. Unsure how to change. If it is, let me hold out these same words of promise to you. God has offered to make you a new creation. To give you a fundamentally new identity. If you would turn from your sin and trust in him by faith. But if you are a Christian this morning, if this is true of you, then then you being a new creation is a present reality. This promise is already yours. The old has gone and the new has come and your identity has been fundamentally shifted. Not your gender or your work status or your marital status. Not your socioeconomic status, not even your age or any other attribute about you fundamentally defines you like this one attribute. That you are in Christ, adopted by God, a new creation. And your hope as a new creation is that he who began this good work in you by faith will bring it to completion by faith. He will one day bring it to fruition. Friends, if that's you, God views you, not based on your merit. He views you as one who's been regenerated, 
made new and born again, both transformed and increasingly conformed into the image of his son, by whose blood this new creation was made possible. This, Paul says, is what actually matters before God. And my charge, my encouragement to you this morning is that you would live in light of it, that you would reap the joy of being a new creation. That's largely what we've considered the last two weeks as we've considered the the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in the Christian life, Uh, that we would live by the Spirit, live distinct, crucifying the flesh, the sinful nature with its passions and desires, putting to death all vain and worldly pursuits, They have no final dominion or authority over you any longer. And as you take off the sinful nature or what Ephesians calls the old man and put on the spirit or the new man, that you would go in the power of the spirit bearing his fruit. The greatest mark of a Christian is not perfection in this life. It's their striving for righteousness with a constant repentance when it's exposed that they've fallen short. And then a regular turning back to Christ in faith. That is what demonstrates the Spirit's work in your life as you seek to live by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, always by faith. But do remember that you are not laboring in this way to earn God's love or favor. You are laboring in this way in response to God's love and favor, having been already earned for you in Christ. Which is Paul's final encouragement. That we would rest in the grace of Jesus. Rest in the grace of Jesus. I mentioned last week that our car was in the auto body. Praise God it is back. Uh, We are now able, so we think, to drive back to Maryland tomorrow. So praise the Lord for that. But it wasn't, but two days later, having gotten our vehicle back from the auto body with all of the work done on it, that my beloved daughter decided it would make a great coloring pad for her new rock. As each stroke drew new colors of paint along what was otherwise brown and nice and now has Marks of silver and eroded. We'll just stop there. (laughs) The Lord taught me something about his love for his children in that moment. (laughs) And in all seriousness, if my relationship with my daughter was grounded on her performance, it would have crumbled. But not only would it have crumbled, but her effort to earn her way back into my love would have crushed her. There is no way she would have felt capable of doing that. But our relationship is actually established entirely independent of that one single act. It's established and grounded on the fact of our status as father and daughter. My love for her is rooted in the fact that she is my daughter. Now, because she is my daughter, I will discipline her in love. And because she is my daughter, I trust that in her love for me, she will desire then to lovingly obey and not do it again. But she knows that her acts will not finally earn back from me lost love. Because she knows 
My love has gone unchanged. It has not been removed. There is nothing to earn back from me. And so there is a restfulness for her, I trust, in her labor for me. And I think that's something of the way Paul encourages us to rest in the love of God through Christ Jesus as we look at verse 16. When Paul says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, this rule that what counts is a new creation, the boasting in the cross of Christ. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in him by faith, you have been past tense and perfect. It is complete. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been declared a beloved child. You have been promised an inheritance that is sure to come. All of this based not on your merit, but on your status as his child earned and assured on the merits of Christ, a merit that is as unchanging as he is. So then we do respond in love, but we rest in the grace that was shown us in Christ Jesus, which I think is what Jesus was getting at in part in John 15 when he said, abide in me, rest in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Church, our only hope to live as new creations, our only hope to boast well, our only hope to defend the truth is if we abide in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is my prayer for you. My closing words, as it were, that you would be marked by a passionate defense of the gospel. A zealous boasting of Christ. A distinct living as new creations. And that all of this would be fueled by an evident resting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you as those holy and utterly dependent on your grace. We find nothing in ourselves except that the Spirit indwells us by your grace and works all forms of life and godliness in and through us by your grace. Mark us as a church that we would go forth in the power of your spirit, keeping in step with him in each of these ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.